Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Today we continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount. This is week three of four. And we have seen already that it is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever lived. And last week we looked at the call to be salt and light. And now we're moving on to cover a number of sections in one because they deal with the reactions of our heart. We're going to look at our language, our temper, how we are to be appropriate with our sexuality. We're going to look at divorce. We're going to look at our language again. We're going to look at retaliation and we're going to look at love for our enemies. And probably this will spill over into next week. We will look at giving and generosity. And of all those passages, I'm not going to read them all, but I'm just going to read the last 10 verses, which talk about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it says, Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48 says these words, you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. When, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This passage of the Sermon on the Mount, these words are some of the hardest words in the New Testament, if not the whole Bible. Incredibly tough and challenging stuff. They are hard because they deal with the very nitty-gritty of our lives, of our thoughts, and our behavior. And we must not make the mistake and see them as spiritual lessons or just spiritual metaphors. We must let them stand as they are, which are incredibly challenging. In this sermon, Jesus is planting the idea of an ethical and moral goodness, not an idea, not a theory, not a concept, but in everyday life. This is what it's about, to be a really good person. If you want to know what it's like to be a good person, this is the passage that we turn to. This is a good life. This is a life well lived when these things flow through us and to us and out of us. And one of the big challenges I believe that we face as Christians is that we have often misunderstood the Sermon on the Mount for we have allowed, just to allowed ourselves or we've allowed authors or we've allowed other people just to turn it into a series of catchy, pithy sayings or just simple truisms like the like the Beatitudes, blessed are those, blessed are those. And they roll off our tongue, they roll out of our hearts very, very pithily. But the reality is they are incredibly difficult words. They need to affect each and every one of us because there is tough stuff. But this is not really what the sermon is about. These truths that are being taught here either live in our hearts 
or they don't. They either live in our lives or they don't. They are reality or they are not. But they're in the context of what God wants to say to us today. Dallas Willard, writing on the Sermon on the Mount, says it like this, and I love it. He says, when Jesus deals with moral goodness and evil, he doesn't begin by theorizing. He plunges into the guts of human existence, raging anger, contempt, obsessive lust, divorce, verbal manipulation, revenge, slapping, suing, cursing, coercing, and all of these, and he begins here. This is the stuff of soap operas and the news, the news and real life. Isn't that great? I just wish, oh, he's passed away now, but I wish I could have gone up to him and said, tell us what you think. You know what I mean? Just don't hold back. Very, very powerful quote. So therefore, as we look at this section on the Sermon on the Mount, these, as I said, are not comfortable verses to unpack, but we need to see the context in which they are spoken. You know, godliness and holiness and what we are called to be as followers of Christ is always difficult to speak about. And when you talk about godliness and holiness and wholeness, it's not really a congregation winner because within it, there is that inherent challenge to us personally to see the very matters of our own life, to see how these things are appropriated to us, to see if we live like this. And the challenge that I find, and I don't know if you're like me, is that when I'm always challenged like this, I put it through my own grid. Well, not everybody understands. No, I've had a difficult se- season, or this is wrong. We all put it some, through some grid that somehow defends ourselves, that we end up defending ourselves because perhaps the words can be a little bit challenging. On a personal note, and I chatted but with this to dawn about this, and we were laughing, that we're amazed how down through the years, on one sentence, we have heard believers talk about the lack of holiness or godliness in the church and in other people, and yet in the very next sentence they utter, they go on to criticize and tear someone down. Oh gosh, godliness isn't like it used to be, or we we don't see holiness, or we don't hear holiness preached as much these days as we used to, and then the next breath, Then they tear somebody down and they criticize someone. And I stand there in disbelief thinking, don't you realize what you have just done? Those two sentences, those two shouldn't really be together. And if we're not careful, we can live in two spheres in our Christian life. One sphere is where we live over here and we strive and function as followers as Christ. We do our best. We try to be faithful with spiritual disciplines. We know that we're a work in progress and we, we, we just do our best and this is one sphere. But then over here we have this other sphere where we still think that it's okay and we grant ourselves permission when appropriate to live how we like, to say what we like about people, think what we like about people and behave how we like. And in this second sphere over here, we can talk about people we don't like, we can say harsh and nasty things about people. We can talk about people who have hurt us, we can talk about people who've looked at us the wrong way, and we can talk about people who have failed us. And the list can go on. But you know, Christ is saying on the Sermon on the Mount that there is no dichotomy, there are no two spheres in our life. There has only got to be one. And if we allow ourselves to live in this contradiction, we will struggle with the Sermon on the Mount, which addresses some of these things like anger and bitterness and so on. 
that Sermon on the Mount doesn't allow us to live a split life. We stand on the daily things that we stay. We stand or fail by the choices that we make and the priorities that we set. There is only one way of living. You see, this passage doesn't point to something that is impossible or unobtainable, and we must never think that is the case. What Jesus is saying here, that there is a pathway to be walked, there is a pathway to follow, there is a life to be lived that is absolutely achievable if we choose to follow what Christ says. Last week, we looked at the call to be salt and light, salt and light to the world around us. And here, in verse 21, Jesus plunges right into concrete examples of how we are supposed to live, how we're supposed to speak, how we're supposed to react. He, he gets hold of us and he says, this is the reality for this area, this area, this area, this area. And he does it for six areas. And as I said, it covers our language, our temper, our sexuality, how we look at people and everything, and ultimately our giving. And he says, let's get down to the nitty gritty of what is going on here. And so Jesus takes us on a journey through six areas that are a real challenge to first century people and 21st century people. Areas that we need to consider not simply when we are gathered, but really when we are on our own. The Sermon on the Mount is, is not really a congregational message, it's a message to individuals. And it's about personal choices. It's not about large gatherings or the corporate, but the choices we make at home, at work, in fact, everywhere. The choices we make about how we're going to speak to our partners, our colleagues, our neighbor. How are we going to respond when we are hurt? How are we going to respond when we are attracted to someone of the opposite sex or even of the same sex? What happens when a relationship breaks down or when our marriages hit difficulties? This is grounded in real life personal choices and private decisions that have public consequences, which really so does most of the New Testament. We read these words of Paul in Romans 12. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. It's not a great word. Such an English word. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own strength. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You may have heard them sometimes call this, but there are two household passages. There are two household codes in the New Testament, one written by Paul, one written by Peter, and they really do address the, the reason that they're called household codes is because how we are supposed to live in our house, how we are supposed to live in those that are nearest and dearest to us, and how are we supposed to live at work, at home, with our in-laws, with our siblings, and these household calls, codes are real calls to living life like the Sermon on the Mount requires of us. A famous passage, which I just want to read again. Paul, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, 
for his good pleasure. As we move forward, as we get into, as it were, to the guts of it, we actually need to take a step back to build on what we saw in part a couple of weeks ago. For today, we need to come and unpack something. The idea that somehow the God who represents Jesus, or the God that Jesus represents is different from the God of the Old Testament is absolutely not true. Some people who believe that the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New Testament actually say, well, you know, you have heard it said, but I say this is evidence of that. And when you go to the Sermon on the Mount, you read that six times. But Jesus himself, as he says in verse 17, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And you might rightly ask, why do we need to hear this again? Well, I'll be thrilled to tell you. You see, Jesus is saying here in colloquial English, every T and every I of the law will be crossed, will be dotted in me. He is not saying that the law doesn't matter. In fact, he is saying the contrary, that he came to fulfill it. We must be careful that we don't miss this because he is saying that these things that I'm about to tell you are not a set of ideas you can choose to ignore. They are not a set of simple concepts to be read and discussed, but these are required for kingdom living. And I have come, I have fulfilled every single one of them so that in me, you have the strength to do it. If he had not fulfilled the law exactly as he had, then we would not be able to go to him and ask him for his grace and his strength to fulfill all those things that he is now about to ask us. So if and when you hear people say about something that they have read in the Old Testament that might be hard or difficult to receive and perhaps makes them feel uncomfortable, they will often say, well, I am under grace. I am not under law anymore. I'm not going to do a show of hands to say if you've ever said that because I'm going to come on to it in a moment. Well, I am under grace. Some of that stuff doesn't relate to me. Can I just say this? This is why I didn't want you to show your hands. That is utter and complete rubbish. And it is one of the biggest lies that the enemy tries to propagate against the Christian church. We are, if we ever say that, we are saying something that is not biblical. Because God is saying, I have fulfilled that law, and I can give you the strength to do it. And we will come on to this in a few moments. Actually, grace raises the bar of the Old Testament. But the other thing that this approach or error can lead to is this. If you don't like some of the Old Testament, you know, and therefore have a nasty Old Testament God and a nice New Testament God, you will soon discover that there are things in the New Testament that are not entirely nice. Acts 5 tells us that God strikes down Ananias and Sapphira for lying. So let's ignore that. Let's take it out. I don't like that, God. Well, let's take Jesus' challenge to the religious hypocrites. I don't like that. Let's take that out. Or that offends me. Let's take out Paul's harsh words about sexual faithfulness and sexual propriety because they offend me. Let's just take out the teaching on giving and generosity because that offends me as well. You know, we're gonna end up with very, very little. It's either all or nothing. If we ever end up with a dichotomy with a space between the God who created us and the God who redeems us, then we have 
enormous difficulties ahead. It will lead to confusion. It will lead to error. It will just lead to just more confusion. Jesus is saying every command of God is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Every ceremonial expectation, every moral expectation, every communal, every personal expectation is fulfilled in Jesus. This is why Peter calls him the perfect blameless lamb of God, and Jesus has done it all. So this is the reason, so that we cannot forget about the Old Testament, but that as Christians, we have our hope, our strength, our life, and our, our grace in he who did all that for us. That's the foundation of what grace brings to us today. Some of you will, will have heard me say that when I came to Christ, those early teens, and I got saved twice, that I... I know it's not theologically possible, but I talk about getting saved twice. When I got saved in the early 70s, and some of you are way too young, you'll never remember this day, but if you are, you'll probably be as sad about it as I was. When I got saved in the early 70s, everything that was coming out of pulpits, literature, was all about the second coming. You know what I mean? Everybody had a chart, everybody had a pamphlet, everybody had a book, every sermon was on the jolly second coming. And it's a surprise that we're still here because I thought it would have happened by now. And, um, and every other Christian seemed to be talking about it. And, and some of you will remember the, 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 the film Thief in the Night? Do you ever, it's like, oh man, I still receive prayer and counseling for that. You know what I mean? I, I, and I use this phrase that when I got saved, I got scared into heaven. I use the phrase, it's either turn or burn. And I just remember getting saved and I was saying, Lord, I want to spend eternity with you and I don't want to go to hell. It wasn't a very good birthing process, was it? You know, this was actually true. They, 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 people would say there's no need to plan for a pension because we're not going to be here in 30, 40 years' time. Real stuff. People say, if you want to have kids, have them now because you're not going to see them grow old. This was some of the rubbish that was coming out at that time. I think that, as I said, when I got saved, I was scared into heaven because the alternative was going to hell. But you know, you've also heard me say that over the next five years, or the first five years that I did get saved, I was wooed and loved by Jesus who revealed himself to me. And he wooed me and he showed me how much he loved me. He showed me how much he cared for me. He showed me how much he loved me so that he died for me. And over the first five years of my Christian life, I became from a scared Christian to a Christian who loved his Savior, that God in his majesty and his love and grace turned me around. And that is why I call it a second conversion. I say all this to contrast the point that I believe that many of us today have been saved by grace but live by law. By this I mean that many have had a powerful encounter with his grace, but due to the lies of the enemy and bad choices that we have made, some believe that you are no longer good enough, you don't come up to scratch, and you don't even know if God likes you. Well, yeah, I'm sure he loves me because he's God, but I don't even think he likes me on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, this is not true. And this is what Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes is all about. That in each situation and in every aspect of our life, he is with us. That he never marks us down. He never gives us a C minor or we get extra homework because we haven't been good enough. He has completely 
fulfilled the law. And this morning, if you do not have the joy of salvation, of your salvation, like you may have had five, 10, 20 years ago, he can restore it because he loves you as much today as when he died for you. And sometimes the stuff of life just knocks the stuffing out of us, and we sometimes wonder, is it all worth it? See, he stands before this group of ordinary people, as he does here today through his word, and says, I am still the same source of life, and I can still make available to you real life, real grace. And you see, he goes on to root this core and his love for us in the realities, as I said, of everyday living. He says, you know, when you fail, I am the Lord of your reactions. When you lose your temper, he says to you, I am the Lord of your temper. When you feel resentment and bitterness, he says, I am the Lord of your resentment and bitterness. I am the Lord of those who don't even like you. And this is what we see today. I am the Lord of your life when you were brokenhearted. I am the Lord of your life when you were rejected when you are meek and when you are so much more. Six times Jesus compares what he says with that of Moses, and every time he raises the bar. Every time he raises the bar. We are not let off life to live it as we like. He is so concerned about us, he is so passionate about us, he is so wonderfully in love with us that he will not allow us to live at mediocrity and he will therefore continue to challenge and speak to us. Grace at work in our life somehow has to work to make us live better. It is not a tool for permission to live any way we like. Grace raises our sexual ethic. It doesn't lower it. Grace raises the standard of programs we watch on the screen as opposed to allowing us to do whatever we like. Grace raises the commitment to our families. It doesn't lower it. Grace changes the words we use. Grace impacts our temper. Grace deals with our lust. Grace deals with our thinking. Grace challenges the way we do disagreement. Grace challenges and transforms our relationship with our enemies because he has fulfilled the law. And so these next few minutes, we're just gonna go through really quick examples And Jesus is challenging a couple of things here. He's challenging the scribes and the Pharisees, but he never, ever challenges what Moses said. See, the Greek word for the phrase, you have heard it said, is erethe. And it is an idiom or a phrase which every Jewish person listening would understand. It was like a modern translation of what Moses says. It's this, your culture tells you Moses said that, but I am telling you what he actually said. Your culture tells you Moses said that, but actually I'm telling you what he actually says. You see, what had happened down through the centuries, the religious leaders, the religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees had added more and more petty rules and expectations onto the Jewish people so that by the time Jesus was born, following the law of Moses was virtually impossible and everything that they did was wrong. First century religion said you were not good enough for God. They had a whole framework for life, and especially regarding the Sabbath. Jesus talks about the Sabbath. 
He obeys the Sabbath. He never breaks the Sabbath. You see, the, the scribes and the Pharisees had become so obsessed with law that they had lost reality. You see, if a wall, this is one of the rules, if a wall fell on a person on a Sabbath, you could remove the bricks to see if he was alive, but if he was alive, you couldn't rescue him because removing the bricks would have been work. Isn't that great? If a chicken laid an egg that was not seen as work, but you couldn't pick it up because that would have been seen as work. Isn't that really, really stupid? And this one, I don't know why you want to do this, but this was one of the rules. If you spat on the ground and someone touched it, they were making a brick and they weren't allowed to make bricks on the Sabbath. I hate that when hope stops me from doing that. Can I pick it? No. I think I need to sanitize it, don't I? Um, <laughs> you see, this is on, and you'll go, go back and know that that's one of the rules, one of the laws. This is on, this is why Jesus, on at least one occasion, spat on the ground on a Sabbath and picked it up. He is not being disgusting. He is saying to the, to the religious people, your rules and regulations are killing these people. When Jesus spat on the floor and picked it up and did something with it, he is really taking it to their face and saying, you guys are really, really ridiculous. Your reg- legislation is killing people. And it's nothing to do with Moses. But if you're a first century Jew and you're hearing this for the first time, this is a different message. Jesus is actually helping people here. He is taking them away from some of the things that the religious people are saying. Think about it. Conceivably, the Sermon on the Mount is about lifting all those religious expectations that are consciously and unconsciously placed on people so that there may be a new way through. The people listening to Jesus are hearing something that is radical and transformational. He says, if you start to live by the way that I really want you to live, your life will be transformed. That's a very same message today. The people I mean, who when you ask them to come to church, they say, you know, I'm not good enough. Now, I I can't really go to church because I'm divorced or I'm living with my partner. You know, I can't really come to church because... You know, I've got a baby and I wasn't married or I fell out with someone in that church so I can't really go back there. Suddenly, what is going on here is very, very different. The old worldview of being religious or attaining some level of acceptability to be accepted is so legalistic, it is so death-giving, but it is now being challenged. This could be incredibly exciting for first-century followers of Christ. But this whole section, there is one thing further that we need to know. All these extra rules and regulations that were put on the people, they were called something in first century Palestine. And they were called the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's what they were called. Okay, let's jump back. Matthew 5 verse 20 says this, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never 
enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not saying Moses doesn't matter. He looks to them, he looks them in the eye, and he says, if your Christian worldview doesn't rise above petty behavior, petty legalism, expectations that no one can fulfill, if your worldview of Christianity isn't more than a religious spirit, you are never ever truly going to enjoy what God has for you. And you will always be miserable. And see, for me, in my brokenness, I don't know what it does for you, but in my brokenness, I get excited about this because, wow, you know, there is something really exciting about this walk and life with Jesus. That I don't have to live on the expectations of other people. Not that we'll come back to grace raising the bar, but, you know, it really is about he has a plan for my life, and it's exciting, and it's thrilling, and it's not, these things are not there to make my life miserable. Actually, they're there to give me real life, and life abundant. And now he goes on, and he talks about these areas that they really, truly going to impact. Can we put them up, please? He tells us we can change hate and stop it from ruining us. He goes on to say that we, can, we have grace to control our bodies, to live purely and holy. He tells us that we have grace to speak with better words and just behave. That grace is available to help us respond when we are wronged. That we have grace when our enemies are against us and we can live differently. He goes on to say that yeah, we need to live generous lives full of giving and he raises the bar again. See, the Sermon on the Mount is not about rules and regulations, but it's life, it's life-giving. All these important areas. This is what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees want you to live on a superficial level that says, I have behaved, so therefore I am good. I haven't done what they have done, so I am good. But Jesus says kingdom living isn't a thing like that at all. It's not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. The Pharisees may say to you, well, you haven't killed. But Jesus says, I look at you and I know that you've killed in your heart. And grace has the power to transform a hateful heart. But I never said anything. No, you may not have, but Jesus says, I know what you felt and wanted to say. But my grace has the power to transform us at the deepest levels of hurt within us but I never touched her or said anything inappropriate to her. But God says, you know, I know what you fantasized about with that person, and I have the power to help you so that we can be different. God looks at us and sees a broken heart that needs to be mended and an attitude that is warped and is selfish that needs to be corrected, and Jesus can change this. Christ's grace changes us at the deepest level, but like me, I'm sure that part of your response is, well, if I'm being honest, grace hasn't worked like that in my life so far. I know the answer to that is no, it's probably true. But the fact is we are on an incredible journey and we are all a work in progress. And if we're still at the same place in 12 months as we are now in some of these issues, well, perhaps we need to revisit that. But if we overcome tomorrow what we can't overcome today, then that is success. See, the word that is used in all this passage for righteousness is the Greek word, and we're going to put it up because I'm not even going to try and pronounce it. 
And in this context, perhaps righteousness is not really the best word to, that is used to translate it. It is actually rooted in another Hebrew phrase, and it means to live life really well. Jesus Christ has a plan for us to live really, really well, and it's not rules and regulations. What God does for us and in us when we have a kingdom mindset is to take us beyond externals and helps us understand that the issues of the heart can be dealt with, that we don't even want to hate somebody else, that we don't even want to say bad things about other people, that we don't even want to be sexually attracted to someone else, that these things can be dealt with. You know, that divorce, which has damaged so many lives and families, that this is not the end of one's life or usefulness in the kingdom. You know, in fact, the understanding of divorce in this New Testament period has been so distorted and, re and repeatedly misunderstood by the Christian church over the last hundred years, it has made divorced people feel second class. We don't have time here today save to say this. Jewish thinking doesn't prohibit divorce. Jesus doesn't hate divorcees. In reality, he invites them to a place of hope and life and deeper meaning and purpose. It's the church, through the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, that has made them feel redundant and failures. So the six areas, irritation with others, sexual attraction, and happiness with your spouse, manipulation, how you handle personal problems, how you deal with an enemy, and giving, are all key issues today as they were 2,000 years ago. And it says, if you were hated, you hated back. If you were injured, you have to hit back. If you were wronged, you wronged back. And that is life, what is life is really like. So as I bring this to a close, in this passage, Jesus talks to us about what to do when someone hits us. Imagine what Jesus is trying to do here. He's trying to say, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give the second person a cloak. But I just want to mess with your theology for a moment. I just want to mess with your minds for a couple of moments. Because New Testament, in most translations, says that Jesus says, the Bible says that Jesus says, turn the right cheek. There's a lot of debate whether it is the right cheek or it says, just turn the other cheek. Because I just want to give you something about culture here. You see, if I was to slap you, and I'm not going to do it, I was going to get somebody up to, to show this, but I thought, no, no, you stay there. Matt Perry's just put his hand up. Usually, I was going to say, usually when you slap someone, I like... <laughs> if you were to slap someone, oh, can we get this to the end? Now, um, if you were to slap someone, you would do it, if you were right-handed, you would do it with your right hand. You would take your hand and you would plant it on the left side, on the right side, I should say. My right hand to left. I was in the office with Megan earlier on this morning and she said, Dad, it's right to left. And I've still forgotten. But what you do is that you take, Edna, can I slap you? <laughs> I take a right and I take it to Edna's left. Usually my right hand would slap someone on the left 
and this is the message you say. But actually, that's not actually what is going on here. The Bible says, and the translation says, that we turn the right cheek. Actually, in Roman culture, what happens is that because left is seen as worse than right, do you know that uh, some of you are old enough to remember this, that when we were kids and you were left-handed, they forced you to write right-handed? Does anybody remember that? And it was, seen as, uh, it was seen as dark and sinister if you were left-handed. I have a sister who's in her early 60s, and she is left-handed. And there was a lot of pressure put on my parents to make sure that she wrote right-handed because it was not seen as right. You see, the word for uh, left comes from the Latin word for sinister, and there's something tied up with that. So this is still r- rule, uh, right at this time. So a Roman... A Roman guard or a Roman soldier, if he was to slap someone of the occupational th- occupied territories, he would not take their right hand and slap them on the left. He would take the left hand, which is derogatory, and he would slap the person on the right side. And he would say to you, I am doubly better than you because I have taken my sinister hand, that's what it says, oops, I have taken my sinister hand and I have slapped you on your best side. Okay? The Greek here in Matthew 5 writes about this slap that Jesus is talking about as a left-handed slap. So when Jesus then says, turn the other cheek, he is saying, we are making this statement, You can do whatever you like to me, but you are no better than me. In fact, you have taken your left hand to try to hit my right side, my correct side. I'm gonna turn the other cheek, and because it's physically impossible, you can't hit me without going like that. And he says, I am turning the other cheek because I am equal to you. You can do whatever you like to me. You may be the powers in charge, but I am equal because of what Jesus Christ is doing within me and who I am in him. And you can do whatever you like, but by turning the other cheek, it wasn't being weak, it wasn't being pathetic. It was saying, we are equal. We are same people in God. And you can do whatever you like to me, but you're not better than me. In Roman custom, A Roman soldier in an occupying territory could ask anyone to carry their load or their pack for a mile. That was written in the law. They could ask them to carry a mile, but they couldn't ask them to carry a mile and an extra inch. So Jesus says, you know, if they make you do that, and they can make you do that, but you know, you tell them that you're an equal of them and carry it two miles. A Roman in an occupying nation could ask you for your tunic, and you had to give it. You couldn't do anything about it. But Jesus says, you know, if they ask you for a tunic, give them two, because they are not better than you. You are an incredibly chosen, wonderful person because of the work that I am doing in your life. And people can look down on you, people can say what they like about you, people can hurt you, they can badmouth you, they can make your life hell. But turn the other cheek, because we know that we know that we know. The Sermon on the Mount is not about a list of impossible rules and regulations. 
It's about a way of living that brings life. It deals with our deepest, darkest fears. It deals with our anxiety. It deals with resentment. It deals with lust. It deals with deviant thinking. It deals with how we deal with others. It deals with sadness. And God is saying, you know, I'm gonna teach you how to live. That is different, but it's exciting. And irrespective of what happens to you, you are mine, and you are my people, and this is how I call you to live. Musicians, please. You know this entity, this church that we're part of, the global church, is truly remarkable, and it gives us an incredible challenge because it brings a different way of living. But we need to choose that lifestyle. And the Sermon on the Mount is don't do this. It's not about don't do this, don't do that, don't do the next thing. It's about living a life that is incredibly free. You know, I actually believe as Christians, we have an opportunity today, literally today, like never before, to be a people of hope and demonstrate that to the world. You know, in the light of what's going on around the world with the coronavirus, we have a great opportunity to say, you know, we're concerned about what's going on, but we will not be fearful because God is in control. Yes, we will be sensible, but we're not going to panic because we know that God is in control. And actually, does it worry us? It may concern us, but you know, God is in control. Instead of being, responding to fear and panic, we above all people have an incredible opportunity to be salt and light and yeast with a message of hope when people are panicking and worried. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.